Well, good morning, everybody. This is, um, it's been a little while since I've operated in this capacity up here, so hopefully uh, you guys will enjoy it, because you got me for the next couple of weeks. So um, if you want to fill out comment cards, go ahead and put them back there in the uh, tithe box, and Melanie will sort through those and, uh, you know, keep them anonymous, of course. Um, Go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, I'll kind of share with you where we're going to go here on this for the next couple of weeks. You might recall that um, in this book, in this letter that Paul has authored, uh, we see a lot of emotion from Paul, in part because he's having to defend himself quite a bit um, against some of the accusations that were made about him in his absence from the church in Corinth. And so we've shared with you that the first seven chapters are primarily a a big, long defense of Paul with regards to the accusations that were being made um, about himself, uh, he and the fellow workers of the faith, and his ministry. And so what we're going to have for the next four weeks is a subset of this much larger defense. Um, Michael and I were looking at um, basically verses... 14 of chapter 2 through um, right around chapter 5, verse 16, and how we would break that down. And he gives me a call one evening and he says, you know what I'm looking at and what I see? Paul poses this rhetorical question that he's then going to go on and answer through his text. And he says, I think there's like four basic proofs that Paul is going to use to defend himself and to defend why and prove why he is adequate for this question that he's going to ask. And I was like, that's pretty cool. I like that. I said, I agree. And uh, so that's how we're going to break this down for the next four weeks. Um, This morning we're going to consider proof number one. And there's other, a couple of other points that I want to make this morning in our text, so the proof number one will come at the end. But this morning will be proof number one, and the next couple of weeks will be proof number two, number three, and number four. And what we'll see is Paul is going to prove why he and his fellow workers are adequate for the challenge that he's posing, which is, um, who is adequate for these things? And we'll see that here this morning. So go ahead and open up, and um, we'll get started. Before we get into that first proof, though, There's two other sections that I want to consider this morning in our passage. Look at verse 12 and 13. Let's read this for a minute. Paul says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Now, at a cursory level, we might say, well, that's just kind of some basic factual information. He's just kind of sharing where he was and some things that happened. But if you recall, not last week, but the week before, um, Michael had shared with us that Paul was having to defend that he didn't come back to Corinth like he had promised them. And he said, it's not that I am a liar, and it's not that I can't be trusted. The circumstances changed, and I just couldn't make it back. He said, you, you can trust me, because when I said that I'm going to come back and visit you, I intended to. And what we see here is, he's coming back to this point that he wants to make. And the point is, while I was in Troas, I was there waiting for Titus. And what I hoped to hear from Titus was the response to that severe letter that he had written. Do you guys remember that Michael shared with us, um, there are, were two um, things that we don't really have a record of in the Bible. 
we have First Corinthians and Second Corinthians, which are actually letters two and four. What we don't have a lot of information about is this painful visit that Paul made, and we don't have a lot of information about this severe letter that he had to author. And so, right around this time, he had authored and sent this severe letter to Corinth. And he knew that it was going to be tough. And he knew that it was going to be hard on them when they read it. And he knew that it was going to be somewhat hurtful. But he was really, really wanting to hear the results. He really wanted to find Titus in Troas. Because he wanted to hear how the letter had been received. And he wanted to know how the the believers in Corinth were doing. And he says here, he says, I was at Troas, and I was there for the gospel. God had sent me, and I was waiting for Titus, but I didn't find him. And he says in verse 14, and 13, I had no rest for my spirit because I didn't find him there. He hadn't come. And so he says, I went on to Macedonia. That's how passionate he is. And what I think is neat about this is, even though these are just two little verses, we get a glimpse into Paul's heart and the anguish that he was experiencing because he didn't have a peace yet. He didn't have a peace about how the believers in Corinth had received this very severe letter that he had sent to them. But what I think is also interesting about this is that he doesn't get into a what I would call a paralysis, right? He doesn't stop working for the gospel. He says specifically that he went on to Macedonia, and what we learn here is he says, God had opened a door for him in the Lord for the gospel. <laughs> So in other words, while he could be lamenting and depressed and just very sorrowful and weary about not finding Titus, he still continues on in the work that God has for him. Have you ever found yourself in life like not having a peace about a particular matter? You know, where it's just like, you know, you're going to bed at night time and you have no rest, your spirit's kind of in turmoil, and you just want to have a peace about what's going on. And sometimes it just doesn't come when you want it. Earlier, um, I think it was, I guess it was, it was earlier this week that I gave Mike a call. and Because I, I had shared with him that for the last couple of weeks, there was an individual who had reached out to us downtown about using our space. And she wanted to use it for what she was claiming would be a, a neutral political forum. And I truly believed her. I believed that her heart was such that she wanted to present on both sides for the upcoming election in November. But I have a policy in our building that we don't do political events, in part because they're usually going to be one side or the other, and we just don't want to get into that arena. So when she's presenting the potential for a neutral event, she was relentless. I mean, she emailed me back after I politely and courteously just kind of said, no, it was not the best space, and she just kept coming after. Like She was very, very polite, but she wanted to do this event in the building. I thought, I've never experienced this before. Usually they just go away quietly when I say that we're not a good match. And, and even though I had sent this, these several messages about why we weren't a good match, I still didn't have a peace in my spirit. It wasn't that I was still wrestling, should we host? But, but how do I reconcile this with what my heart feels intellectually? And I called Michael and he says, well, and he gave me just a great explanation. And I was able to match up what I believe God was putting in my heart about the matter with a, an intellectual, reasonable, and practical response that matched up with our doctrine, our theology, if that makes sense. And after I had that conversation with him, I had a peace. 
In other words, I didn't have any rest for my spirit for a couple of weeks about this particular matter. I kept on, kept keeping on, and then when I, when I reached out to him, he gave me a great sort of explanation as to why I may have been feeling and wrestling with this, and I was so grateful and I was so thankful. And so, really what I wanted to highlight this morning, with regards to verses 12 and 13, is just simply that um, we, we get a glimpse into how Paul was feeling at the time, we understand that he was really, really wrestling with a particular matter, and yet at the same time, he did not let this issue derail him from glorifying God. He didn't let this issue derail him from the assignment that God had for him, which was to share the gospel. And he even continued on to a new location to keep doing that. And I think it's a good um, example for us that we can't allow uh, a particular analysis to create a paralysis for us in our own lives. That God's calling is, is still there, and we need to stay steadfast in our mission. The next section I'm going to look at this morning is verses 14 to 16. And read those with me, if you will. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things? So there you see that question that we're going to come back and um, and address. But basically, Paul is going to start to introduce and set the stage for this question about being adequate and the adequacy that believers, that's all of us, and what we have in Christ Jesus. But he begins with a word picture. Did you catch that? Did you see this sort of metaphor that he gives us with regards to himself and fellow believers like us? He says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. And then he says in verse 15, For we, you all, are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. How cool is that? What a neat, what neat imagery he uses there. What a neat metaphor he, he creates there to show us how God uses us. He says, thanks be to God. Now, didn't we just see a really heavy laden spirit that he couldn't find Titus? He was really worn out. He had no rest for his spirit. But then you see a praise right after that. Thanks be to God. And so this mood of heaviness shifts. And he says, because God always leads us in the triumph of Christ. So what triumphs is Paul referring to? Well, think about what he wrote in in 1 Corinthians. about He he quoted the Old Testament and said, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Think about what Jesus did on the cross, in the tomb, and the resurrection to be victorious over sin in our lives. He has conquered sin and death once and for all for the believer. That's amazingly triumphant, isn't it? And so one way we might look at this is, no matter where Christ leads us, it's always in complete and total triumph because that can never be revoked. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can disqualify us from eternal life with Him. The cross and the resurrection have guaranteed and ensured for you and I, we've been marked 
with the Holy Spirit and sealed so that that can never be revoked. And so when we go out and we are, when we are in the presence and we're in the world and we are you know, mingling among others, we are a fragrant aroma and we operate in the triumph of Christ. You have the King of Kings on your side. And he says that God causes them to be a sweet aroma and through that, God makes himself known in every place. Now notice how Paul is very intentional about crediting God with the work. He says, we're a fragrant aroma, not because of our own means and because of what we have done, but simply because of who we are in Christ Jesus and what God has done on our behalf. And when we go somewhere, it is God who makes us the fragrant aroma in every place. And God uses us to make himself known. The knowledge of him. Everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. Is that true about us, friends? I mean, when, when you guys go into a space, do you understand or do you see yourselves in a, as an aroma that permeates and infiltrates and, and uh, fills the space that you're in? No matter who else is there. Uh, you guys probably know that Susan works for L Brands, which you know, used to be limited brands, but used to be Whatever, and and so they so they have um, they've, they've owned several companies, right? One of which is Bath and Body Works. And back in the day when we were first married, um, we would go to what were called sample sales. Have any of you familiar with sample sales? And so it's when you know Bath and Body Works and Victoria's Secret and other companies, but specifically Bath and Body Works, um, would have all of this excess merchandise that they were either um, discontinuing or maybe it couldn't be used for in the stores for some reason or another. And it would be any number of things. It could be all of their um, antibac lotions and soaps and things like that, but it could even be things that they used in the store as props and as um, decoration during the holidays or, or whenever. And so you would pay like $50, you would go to the sample sale, and you had to have a connection to an employee, of course. And for 50 bucks, you'd get like one or two bags that stood this tall, real big, heavy plastic uh, visqueen type stuff. And it was whatever you could fit in there. For like 50 bucks. Like just these bins, as far like, like this warehouse, these bins as far as you could see with just product. And it, sometimes it was a race. Like if you were at the front of the line, you know, I mean, it was an all-out like foot race. And, and you'd see ladies like diving into these cardboard boxes, you know, and like throwing stuff over their shoulders and everything. But the point is, we'd get all this product, right, that, that we could use at home. And we would store it in our basement at our other house. And you remember this? We would go down into the basement and others would come down to the basement with us or whatever. It was kind of like going into a Bath and Body Works store. And the place smelled like one of those stores. The whole basement. I mean, and it would even start like for years. Like this isn't just like for a month after we went to the store. I mean, for years, our basement smelled like BBW. I only said that to say, um, when, when, when we go to a space as a believer and, and, and God has led us there, he causes us to be a fragrant aroma for His glory. And that's how we should be operating. If He's the one that's going to empower us, and He's the one that's going to move us, then all we got to do is be obedient. And what this tells me, what Paul has said here, is that God's going to do the heavy lifting. We just got to walk in the assignment that He has for us. When we go into a space, wherever that is, whether it's a congregation of believers, we should be a fragrant aroma for His glory. 
whether it's with unbelievers, we should be a fragrant aroma for His glory. And Paul says that when we're going in the presence of those who are saved, we are life unto those who are life. And he says, and when we go into a space where there's non-believers who have rejected the gospel, we are life among those who are perishing. And Paul puts it very, very clearly here. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. That's it. There is no in-between. There's no gray area. I used to race motocross when I was younger. And we used to have a saying. There's only two kinds of riders. Those who have fallen and those who have yet to fall. That's it. There is no in-between. And there is no gray area when it comes to eternity. To those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. That's it. What is, what is your response to the gospel? And notice the emphasis that Paul puts on Christ Jesus himself. He says, the, the, listen to this terminology, the gospel of Christ... In verses 14 through 16, he says, God leads us in Christ. He says that we are a fragrance of Christ. And he says, we exhibit the sweet aroma of knowledge of Him. Look at how careful Paul is to make sure that Jesus gets all the glory. He's not praising himself when he goes into these spaces and says that we are super successful in sharing the gospel. He's saying that we are successful because God has made us successful. And he credits everything to Christ Jesus. And I love that. Because I don't think I'm as careful to do that oftentimes. I don't think that I'm always as intentional about recognizing that Jesus is the one who has made something possible in my life. I'm terrible about following up and going, hey, look what God did. Isn't this great? Oh, I'll petition and, and offer prayer requests up to him all day long. But when he answers, how fragrant am I? in crediting Him. So that others, believers and non-believers alike, have a knowledge of God as a result. Now, verse 16b, I said we're going to come back to this. This is where we're going to investigate for a moment. This rhetorical question that Paul asks, but then we'll spend a few chapters answering in a typical Pauline nature. Um... Where he kind of just throws it out there and then he goes, well, I'm going to go ahead and answer this for my audience. I'm going to go ahead and set them straight. I'm not going to let them flounder around and try and figure out what the answer is. I'm going to give it to them. Verse 16b. And he says, after this discussion about being a fragrant aroma, after this discussion about being used for the knowledge of God everywhere they go, and he says, and who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate for these things? This is what we're going to look at for the next three weeks. Who is adequate for what things? Well, he's told us. Who is adequate to be a sweet uh, fragrance for Christ? Who is adequate to be triumphant in Christ? Who is adequate to be used by God to spread the knowledge of Him everywhere? And he's going to give us four proofs of why he is. Why his fellow workers of the faith and missionaries are. And I would say to us here at Renew why we are. Why are we adequate just as Paul was adequate among his accusers? 
And so our first proof, he's going to answer for us in verse 17. He is adequate because he's not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, he speaks in Christ in the sight of God. So this is a direct uh, response to the false teachers' accusations of them. Right? And I say direct, but he doesn't come out and name name any names. And he doesn't really even um, start picking at them. Rather, he makes a subtle statement like, well, unlike others, we don't peddle the word of God. That's about all he says about it. And then he goes on to kind of talk about why he's sincere and why they're adequate. But that, that word pedal is kind of a loaded word. Because it can mean, um, it can mean a number of different things. But to uh, retail or sell something, to compromise something, to corrupt something for falsehood and gain, And what Paul is responding to are those false teachers who had come into Corinth in his absence who were spreading a false gospel, uh, probably Judaizers like in the church in Galatia, who were probably still maintaining that the church needed to do all kinds of different things, still observe the law to a degree. And it was contradictory to what Paul had shared with them about Christ crucified. And their motivation, oftentimes, was for material or financial gain. Jude shared that with us. He said, be careful of those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Be careful of those who are only in it for the material gain. Remember Balaam? Remember the prophet Balaam? Completely in it for material gain, and that was it. He, you know, he, he was looking for a paycheck. And, and so he would prophesy um, against Israel for whoever was writing him a paycheck. And then he would prophesy for Israel if he was getting a paycheck from them. He didn't care. It was completely for the material gain. And he gets noted in the New Testament as a result. As an example of what not to look like. Do not behave as Balaam did. That's pretty bad. When you get mentioned in the New Testament... As somebody about what not to do, that is not good for you for eternity. <laughs> Let me just say. And so Paul is concerned about the accusations that were likely being made about him, or at the very least, the way the other false teachers would come in and operate. And that was to peddle the word of God, not from sincerity, not from as a mouthpiece of God, not in good conscience among Christ, but rather for their own material gain, whatever that may have been. Pride, um, notoriety, fame, um, recognition in the community, or paycheck. It doesn't really matter, but they peddled the Word of God. And he said, we are adequate to be a fragrant aroma for Christ Jesus and spread the knowledge of Him because we don't peddle the Word of God. We don't behave and act like they do. Later on in chapter 4, verse 2, we'll see where he says, We don't walk in the craftiness adulterating the word of God. In in, um, Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 through 9 when he's referring to the Judaizers, he says, they distort the word. 
this this uh, verse 17 here in um, chapter 2, listen to this. The NET translation says this, For we are not like so many others, hucksters, who peddle the word of God for profit. Isn't that a, isn't that a great translation? We're not like these other hucksters, these con artists. We have pure motive, and we do this from the heart of God. And I think the other thing that's important for us to note, um, you might remember uh, our discussion or our look at 1 Corinthians. In chapter 9, when Paul's discussing um, the, the liberties, right? Uh, the liberties that we have in Christ, the liberties that we have in grace, doesn't mean that we can necessarily or should do all kinds of things. Th- though they are not explicitly sinful, Maybe they're not profitable. Maybe they're not edifying for the body, for those onlookers. And one of the things he discussed in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians was that, that he, he, of all people, should be worthy of wages for sharing the gospel and for his work for Christ. Okay? But he said, I'm not going to take a paycheck, and I don't want any contributions, because I don't want anybody to ever look at me and say that he's doing it for the money. He was very, very careful to make sure that nobody would misrepresent his motivation and his agenda. He was operating for the glory of God and nothing less. And nobody could ever rightfully say of Paul, ah, he was just in it for the love offering that was provided to him. He said, he told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh-uh, I'm not taking that because I don't want anybody to ever say that about me. You know, there was an example in the Old Testament, uh, I don't know, in Genesis somewhere, where uh, Abraham rescued Lot. And it was sort of a midnight operation, if you were, where Abraham took his own men and went in and rescued Lot and the other kings that had been taken captive by um, this larger king, King Kedolimar, I think. And when they got back, um, the king of Sodom said, you may have all of the spoils that you have rescued as a thanksgiving and a payment for rescuing us. And Abraham said, nope. He said, I'm going to give a tenth to Melchizedek as the great high priest. And that's it. Keep your spoils, king of Sodom. Because I don't want anybody to ever come back and go, Abraham is only wealthy because the king of Sodom made him wealthy. Abraham didn't want to have any connection to that corruption. He didn't want any misunderstanding or misrepresentation that his wealth and his well-being could be credited to the king of Sodom. He said, no, you keep all that stuff. What's our motivation? You know, Michael you know, reminds us oftentimes that in the, in the Western church today, we see, a, we see a lot of maybe flawed motives in church leaders. Not to say that everybody is, but there's a lot of people who are in it for the paycheck, unfortunately. Peddling the word of God is just something that seems to be convenient for them. You spoke last week, I think, or maybe it was, I guess it was last week, about how consciences can be seared. That a particular way of life and thought can become so routine that we're no longer, that a person is no longer able to distinguish right from wrong and the sin is not readily identified anymore, that the conscience has been seared. But that's not what Paul says here about himself and the fellow workers of his faith. He says, we speak from sincerity. And he says, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. In other words, they've got a perfectly clear conscience among 
God and among men about what they say, what they do, and the motivation by which they do it. He is squeaky clean as far as he's concerned. Then in verse 1 of chapter 3, we'll do the first three verses here. He says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? Well, you are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What a cool other illustration and analogy he gives us there. What a neat metaphor. So after he talks about not being like the others who peddle the word of God for profit. And he talks about how he speaks with sincerity. And he has a clear conscience among God and among men. He then says, are we beginning to commend ourselves? Kind of like, remember what the false teachers practiced? You know, part of their motivation was to build up a great portfolio a great portfolio of messages that were filled with just great rhetoric that may or may not have had any biblical truth in it whatsoever. Corinth was filled with philosophers and and people who just would love to pontificate. And oftentimes in Greek culture, it was more about um, how well you could present your argument and maybe not as much importance on the content itself. How... How well could you craft your argument and your discussion on the debate team? And when you were in the public forum and you were discussing with somebody else, you know, what were your presentation skills like? Does that sound familiar? You know, Susan and I last night had some um, a cl- uh, some clients of ours over for dinner, and they have recently relocated here from Houston, Texas, uh, last October. And they're trying to get settled in, trying to find a church home and stuff like that. And it was funny because they've struggled with the first couple of churches they visited because it seemed like a a real show. And we were very, very familiar with one of the churches that they attended and were just a little concerned that there wasn't much scripture being presented. Rather, it was a lot about the flashy lights and the presentation and stuff. And so these false teachers, it was not uncommon for them to send letters praising themselves. Hey, here's my resume. You should have me come and speak and you should, you should uh, entertain what I have to say because I've spoken in all these places. i got a great resume. Or, would you write a letter of recommendation for me? You know, I was in Corinth and I gave you guys a great presentation. I put on a great show. Uh, how about some letters from you guys? speaking to our credentials and how great we were. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, are we doing that with you guys? Are we commending ourselves among you? Or are we asking for letters from you to commend us? No. We're not. We don't need that. He says, you are our letters. You are our evidence. You guys have believed as a result of us preaching Christ and Christ crucified. You are the perfect example 
of authenticity in Christ Jesus, the perfect example of the sincerity that I just spoke about, we need nothing else. You are a living testimony. Renew, each and every one of you who is saved in Christ is a living testimony. You are a letter for Christ giving example and praise for what He has done in your life. Your lives point to the saving work of the cross with sincerity and authenticity. And, you know, we might be able to infer here or uh, deduce. It might be a little bit of a stretch. But if these Judaizers were promoting a heavily law-based message that the new believers still needed to adhere and respect and observe a lot of principles of the law, the fact that Paul then makes this other metaphor analogy about letters not written with ink or on stone tablets but rather on your hearts, in, in a way, I mean, I want you guys to understand, it's a, it's a speculation a little bit, but in a way, it could be a jab at those Judaizers. It could be a way of him you know, poking a finger and going, they're coming in here and telling you, you still need to do all the things that the law says. And that Jesus did not come to fulfill the law, as he said, but you've got to do all these things still. And Paul says, we don't, we don't need letters of ink and paper and papyrus. And we don't need tablets of stone. You're our letter. You're Christ's letter. Christ is now written on your hearts. That was a prophecy made to the sons of Israel. That one day God would write His law on the hearts of His people and no longer on stone tablets. Some of you may know <clears throat> that um, there's a men's ministry that I lead on Wednesday mornings, and I've been a part of it for a long time. And many, many years ago, there was a gentleman um, in our midst who... As a result of some activities a few nights prior and some sin and things like that, ended up having some health issues. And so he, we were meeting in the basement of the Episcopal Church downtown at the time. This was maybe 98 or 99, somewhere around there. And he had to excuse himself from our meeting for a moment and go to the restroom because he had some internal bleeding. And he came back out. He was pretty pale, pretty flushed, and ended up sort of collapsing on the floor. And we're in the basement of the Episcopal Church, where there was a public, like, sort of restaurant, cafe type of thing. And we're all gathering around this gentleman, trying to tend to him. And somebody from the church, I think from the cafe, comes over to us and says, do you want me to run upstairs and get the priest? And my friend Bert looks up at him and goes, no, we're priests. And he wasn't being flippant. 
He wasn't being rude. And it was in no way an attempt to be disrespectful. Rather, Bert recognized that some other guy who just happens to be wearing a, a cloak isn't going to be able to meet or serve the needs of our brother any better than we are. Christ has called each and every one of us to be representatives of him. Michael has shared with us that the the term Christian literally means little Christs. When we looked at the book of Ephesians, part of that was about um, making our walk match the declaration, the identity that we have in Christ Jesus. Right? Walk in a manner that reflects the calling on your life. And so as, as our friend was there on the floor, we all were interceding, we were all praying, because we have direct access to the throne room in Christ Jesus. It is through His blood and His resurrection that we get to pray and petition to the Father and say, help our friend. And don't you know, when he went into that restroom before he collapsed, it was like, a, I don't mean to be too graphic for you guys, it was, it was a very, very bright, bright, really deep, like rich blood. And when he, um, when, after we had prayed for him and he had sort of come to, um, the, the blood that was being excreted after that was a very dirty, kind of brown, like it had already passed through the system. It wasn't um, this, this deadly kind of result of interstitial internal bleeding. It was like exhausting, old, bad, done type of stuff. I mean, absolutely fascinating. I mean, watching a miracle occur at our own hands. And it was such a special privilege and so when we look at what Paul is saying here he's saying you guys are letters of Christ he has written himself on your hearts and you have been made known by all men look at what he says there known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, on human hearts. That's cool. And that's true of us here at Renew. We are Christ's letters, and our lives should point to the salvation that we have in Him. And so as we kind of pull all of this together this morning... What we've seen, is, which is not uncommon so far in our look at 2 Corinthians, we've seen a defense by Paul that is just riddled with these theological truths and these, these biblical principles that we can embrace for ourselves. And, and sometimes they're kind of disguised. You don't see him just come right out and just bash his accusers. Rather, in an effort to set himself apart and show his audience the authenticity and the validity of his own ministry, he points to biblical truth about why he and his fellow workers are adequate to be a fragrant aroma for God. And so, I think maybe the first thing from our text this morning, I kind of mentioned this earlier, when we look at Paul in Troas and in Macedonia, he didn't allow that temporary sort of setback or frustration or, or not having a peace about a matter derail him from his assignment. I think that's something that we can embrace too. 
You know, as we go through life and we're going through a season where we're really frustrated and we don't have a peace about a particular matter, we can't let that create a paralysis for us. We can't let that derail us from what we know about Christ and derail us from operating in the triumph that we have over death. Nothing should ever cause us to reconsider or question our eternity either. We should never find ourselves in a circumstance this side of heaven that we find so severe or so drastic that we might say, Fool, am I going to make it in? No, of course we are. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The second thing we might look at is we are called to be a fragrant aroma for Christ and others should smell us. How do you like that? We should be a fragrant aroma for Christ and others should smell us, necessarily. And if they aren't, we've already learned that God will do all the heavy lifting for us. If somebody is not made more aware about the knowledge of God after spending time with us than what happened. That's an opportunity that we may have missed, friends. Myself included. If He's going to empower us, and He's going to equip us, then let's operate accordingly. Let's walk in that calling that He's given to us. You ever kind of been pricked by the Holy Spirit in your heart? You know, I'm supposed to go talk to that person. It's like, sometimes we do. Sometimes we step up to the plate. And other times we're like, oh, what are they going to say? What are they going to think? We might miss an opportunity. And it might be because we are concerned that maybe we won't have the words to say. Or maybe we won't speak eloquently. And yet God has said, I'll take care of you in that situation. I'll give you the words to say. Just trust me. And then maybe the third thing that we could take away from this, obviously, is that we are living letters of Christ's ministry of reconciliation. We are living letters of Christ's ministry of reconciliation. We are living, breathing examples of salvation. Um, the, and as such... The gospel that we share with others should necessarily be a personal gospel. Right? If Jesus has done a transformation in your heart, and He has reconciled you, and you are no longer an enemy of God, that is an incredibly personal dynamic, and people should hear that about your life. There are no two testimonies in this room that are exactly identical. The principles on which we are saved are identical, right? but the manners in which they happened are not. And so each one of us has a personal testimony and people should see that and they should hear that. The gospel should be personal. Let's share that with others. Let's let them know what God has done for our own personal lives. And that will cause us to be a letter for Christ that he has written on our hearts. We don't need some special resume, right? We don't need letters of um, commendation. 
we don't need to have uh, necessarily letters after our name. You've mentioned theological degrees and other things to share what Jesus has done for you. Those are all great things. But you don't have to have it to tell somebody about the knowledge of God. Amen?